This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Did you wake up this morning and immediately wonder how space-based companies are being financed? Or how about when humans will first step on Mars? This is episode six of the Seven Investing Podcast. I'm Austin Lieberman, and today our founder, Simon Erickson, has an out of this world conversation with the creators of the world's very first space themed ETF. In this interview, Simon digs into three big questions How should investors approach investing in space? Are the traditional defense contractors that have been around for decades too conservative? And on the flip side, are the new wave of innovators like Virgin Galactic too risky? Simon and the founders of Procure Asset Management cover these questions and more during the interview. Thanks for listening. And if you get a second, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player and throw us a rating or a review. Hi, everyone. Seven Investing founder Simon Erickson here, and we are talking today about doing business in outer space. The next time you look up at the skyline, know that there's a lot going on up there, and it has some significant implications for investors. This afternoon, I'm honored to welcome my guests from Procure Asset Management. I have Andrew Channon and Micah Walter-Range. They are the CEO and strategic advisor of Procure AM. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining me to talk about space this afternoon. Thanks for having us. Andrew, you have created the very the world's very first space-themed ETF. Appropriately, the ticker on that is UFO. And there's a lot of headlines and a lot of buzzwords and a lot of talk about this new space economy. But I've got to lead with the first question for you of why now? What are the catalysts that you're seeing out there that suggest now's the right time to be investing in space? So there are several reasons why we chose to, to go after this theme and why we chose to go after it when we did. And for me, having created many thematic ETFs historically, I've learned a lot of lessons of you know, do's and don'ts and you know, things that you should be considering and things that you know, m- might make a fund work and might not. And when looking at where the space industry has you know, initially evolved from to where it is today, we've seen this incredible transformation of an industry, one that was in its early days really driven almost entirely by government spending to one that is now you know, well beyond a passion project of government and something that is being used and driven by commercial interests and even used by everyday citizens and, and consumers such as ourselves. And so when looking at you know, how important the current space industry is to us, as well as looking forward and seeing you know, the many different innovations that companies and billionaires and governments um, around the world are looking to do within the space industry, um, the, the ability to offer investors exposure to this burgeoning space industry was something that we thought was um, you know, a great way to provide investors with a new potential investment opportunity. And you know, like you said, um, you know, potential catalysts, to me, I think that that 
when someone is looking at, at making an investment into a thematic ETF, in many cases, they are looking at, you know, what potential things could be positive for that broader industry down the road. And like you said, as far as some catalysts, I, I think that there are you know, several interesting things going on in the space economy um, around the world that could potentially benefit the broader space industry. So, you know, at a very high level, a couple of those things are that you know, space is less reliant upon government spending and is now driven by um, kind of the commercialization of space. Another being that governments around the world are actually starting to build up their own military and defense programs focused on space. Just in the U.S. alone, we're, we're hearing about Space Force. And then on top of that, although space hasn't been as reliant upon government spending as it had been in its early days, we are seeing things like the U.S. government increasing their budget towards NASA. So there are many different things happening around the world, and I'm sure Micah can tell you many other things, but these could potentially help to expand and provide um, you know, much-needed capital to the space industry. Well, Micah, let me bring it over to you as well, and we'll touch on those entrepreneurs and those governments a little bit later in the interview, but I'd like to start with that transformation that Andrew's talking about, about commercial players now getting out into outer space. Uh, Mike, I know that you are also the president of Kalis Partners, so that's kind of enabling the commercial viability of companies getting into outer space. Where are the companies that are doing business out there? How are they deriving their revenue? Well, I think we need to make a distinction, Simon, between the businesses that exist today and are publicly traded and that can be accessed through the ETF and other means um, versus the ones that are still in the early stages and will ultimately grow, hopefully, to the point where they become part of the ETF. And we actually have one really good example of that uh, startup, Virgin Galactic, um, started in response to a competition that was held at this point more than a decade ago to see if it was even possible for a privately developed vehicle to carry humans into space. Um, and so there was a competition, there was a winner, the intellectual property from that competition then gradually turned into this company. Um, and, and I won't walk you through all the steps that took place to make that happen, but you know, the company has grown, it's developed, they've gone through a flight testing program, they had an accident, they recovered from that. You know, this is the sort of thing that you expect from a space program because pretty much every major nation has gone through that. And then uh, they're getting to the point where in the near future, they hope to start launching flights, carrying passengers, paying passengers aboard. Um, that was possibly going to happen this year. Now with everything that's happening, I, I honestly have no idea <laughs> if that's going to get pushed back or, or rather how much that's going to get pushed back. Um, but last year, uh, it started trading publicly. And so it became eligible for inclusion in the ETF. And now you can access Virgin Galactic you know, through the ETF, along with this portfolio of other stocks that, that are companies that are already out there. Now, the, the distinction I'd like to make, though, between those newer companies and the ones that are already uh, publicly traded, many of the publicly traded ones focus on two main sectors. One is communications, uh, and the largest subsection of that is broadcasting. And this is one area that uh, I haven't seen any numbers coming out yet, but with all of the lockdowns associated with coronavirus, and I'm sorry, you knew that was going to come up, <laughs> but um, I'll try not to dwell on it too much. Um, you know, 
direct to home satellite television. You know, it's a wonderful way for people to pass the time when they can't get out and can't go and do these other things that they would normally be doing. Um, and one of the fantastic things about it is unlike say streaming over the internet, which is constrained by internet capacity. And we've seen things like Netflix being asked to downgrade the quality of its streams because there are so many people using it. You know, when it comes to broadcasting from space, um, those satellites just send out the signal and anyone with a receiver can pick it up and it really doesn't matter how many people are tuning in. You're not going to get a degradation in the signal quality because of that. Um, so we're definitely seeing some advantages there. Um, similarly, as people uh, are trying to work from home and, and you know, put a much greater strain on communications infrastructure, uh, satellite communications are a critical part of the global uh, communications network, um, just bringing those signals you know, all around the world and and enabling people to go on as best they can under these conditions. Now, you know, there are some downward pressures on that, obviously, because one of the benefits of satellite is it can uh, be very effective for, say, in-flight Wi-Fi. Well, there aren't a whole lot of flights going on right now. Um, so, so that part of the business is probably taking a bit of a hit. Um, but then the other really major uh, part of the commercial sector is um, all of the location-based services. And you think about Uber or delivery services. We're seeing all of these restaurants switching over to delivery only. Um, well, how do those drivers find your house? They do it because they carry around handy little smartphones that have that location-based service uh, in them. Uh, whether it's DoorDash or Grubhub or you know, any of these other companies. And they're able to find your house quickly and efficiently because of that service. And that is based on a signal that is broadcast from space. So you know, we're really seeing how space is playing an incredibly important role right now in the midst of everything that's going on with coronavirus. But in general, these are major sections uh, of the economy that um, are growing and developing all the time, and space is fundamental to their success. And Mike, a GPS was originally designed by the Air Force, you know, for guiding missiles. And like you said, now it's mm -hmm. guiding food delivery across the nation and helping Uber pick up um, riders and matching riders and drivers. Are there other government-funded technologies that you're seeing being developed right now uh, that you think would have a similar impact on the commercial economy down the line? Uh, let's see. Well, so another area that the, that the government has really been strong on developing is just Earth observation, satellite imagery. And people think about satellite imagery in the context of, say, something like Google Maps, where you can see that picture. But there are all kinds of other types of sensing um, that are done from space. So, you know, everything from tracking uh, different pollutants in the air. Um, it, it's been fascinating, again, seeing how uh, when different parts of the world shut down major parts of their industry, uh, the air quality improves substantially. And now, as some of those regions are getting back to work, particularly in China, we're seeing the air pollution tick up again slowly. And so it provides another gauge of um, that type of activity. But how is that relevant to people in their everyday lives? 
well, you think about how important air quality is, and it's something that a lot of people in the United States take for granted, but uh, elsewhere in the world, that can be something that people need to know on a daily basis. Do I need to wear a mask going out today for you know, air quality reasons as opposed to other reasons? You know, do I need to stay home? Um, you know, do I need to run an air purifier? Things like that. Um, similarly, uh, just understanding the importance of weather and being able to track that and forecast that uh, with even greater accuracy and, and down to even the level of an individual field. Um, it's very helpful for you and me as we go about our day and figure out you know, what our weekend plans are going to look like. Um, but it can also be incredibly important for farmers as well. So these are all different areas that people are working on that, uh, that space can contribute and has contributed. And so much of this technology still resides in the government and people are taking it and turning it into commercial systems and then building services based on those. And as those systems continue to be developed, uh, I think we're going to see it become even more accessible uh, to regular users like you and me. And one more for you, Micah. You know, we, we mentioned satellites there quite a bit for communications, for GPS, for imagery, a lot of applications based on satellites. And satellites aren't costing millions of dollars anymore. We're starting to hear about CubeSats, which are very small, very low fixed cost. Uh, can you talk about the impact that you think CubeSats are going to have on the commercial economy or, or just space in general? Right. So uh, CubeSats, uh, they are literally small enough to fit in your hand. <laughs> and they're not as capable, certainly, as the gigantic car or bus-sized satellites um, that are still being produced for many different purposes. So if you want to, say, provide television coverage over an entire continent, you need a large satellite to do that. <laughs> That's just a matter of simple physics. Um, but, but with these smaller satellites, some of them at the level of CubeSats, CubeSats are fantastic for uh, experimentation um, and, and rapid prototyping. And yes, you can build them inexpensively. You can launch them inexpensively. A lot of the time they just ride along as a, a secondary passenger along with the uh, big satellites. Um, and, and so you can send them up in large quantities and, and just figure things out much more rapidly than you could in the past. Now, the, the thing that some people have done is they've taken the CubeSat format, which is a cube with sides that are 10 centimeters. Um, and then you, they've taken those and they've stuck a bunch of them together. So it's not technically a CubeSat anymore, but it's still very small. Um, and so some of those are now operational systems where you have companies that are flying a hundred or more of them, and they're picking up all kinds of data, doing things like ship tracking on the oceans, um, even monitoring parts of the atmosphere, because you can see how the GPS signals bounce around in the atmosphere, and you can figure things out about the different layers of air. Um, and that, it turns out, is actually useful for weather forecasting. So uh, all kinds of fantastic things that are underway there. Um, and and I, the thing that really excites me about it is it, it's making space more accessible. And the more experimentation we can do, the more development, the more rapid iteration, then the more space is going to look like other parts of the high-tech economy. Um, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why uh, venture capital firms have gotten involved in the past decade 
really mostly in the past five years in terms of the actual dollars invested um, because it looks a little bit more now like the software industry. Still not quite there, but it's more like that than say a slow moving government industry. And so they're able to say, oh, right, you know, I, I understand the business model. I understand how quickly you're going to be able to test and scale this up. And I'm willing to put some money in because I think it's going to work within the timeline for my fund. Um, and so, you know, that's taken us to this place where uh, some of these systems are out there, they're working away, and we're seeing the data coming from them. So it's very exciting um, to start to see the benefits uh, from those systems and from those investments. Andrew, Micah just mentioned VC firms. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the financing for this. Uh, you know, obviously, it seems like the costs are coming down. Uh, we've got CubeSats. We've got lower-cost satellites. Um, even if the fixed costs are coming down, a lot of these operations are still predominantly in the future. Um, there is so much of the cash flows that are dependent or that bank loans are dependent upon are, are still in the future. And I, I would think that would make it traditional financing very difficult for some of these companies. Are the companies that you all are investing in, or at least the ones that are doing operations in space right now, are they still being backed by VC firms or is there other forms of financing you're seeing? So Micah, given his background, could probably even give you many other answers, even you know, uh, possibly directly with what you know, specific deals that he's looking at. However, you know, for the for the majority of the portfolio, these companies are currently operating in space. Virgin Galactic is one of the rare exceptions in the fund where they're actually um, still building out their technology and running tests, and are hoping to bring you know, actual customers into space. Um, how, however, for the most part, a lot of these companies already are actually in business. So they have all different types of financing. Some have strong cash positions. Some are reliant upon um, current and future revenues from other business lines. Um, and, and some, uh, you know, uh, uh, not one of the largest companies in the fund, but, you know, a company like Boeing that is in the fund that happens to have its own, um, you know, diversified businesses um you know, you've seen them do things like draw draw down on credit lines and things like that um and also look for you know, potential government financing um to keep the you know certain operations going so you know the, the current situation i think is um you know was unexpected for a lot of different companies um but you know i think looking at something such as an etf it gives investors a way to get exposure to many different companies specializing in all different areas of the space industry um, in all different you know, spots on that own company's you know, life cycle. So you, know, you kind of have this diversified exposure to all different companies doing different things that you know, have their own types of financing capabilities, needs, or demands. Um, so uh, you, you are getting kind of all different types of um, you know, companies with various needs for you know, the build out of their future projects and R&D and things like that. So it's tough to paint any um, you know, a uh, group of these companies with, you know, one brush and say that's, you know, what they're doing or that's what the challenges are. I think, you know, the nice thing about, you know, the current structure of the fund is that a lot of these companies are generating revenues currently. So they're able to have a lot more flexibility as opposed to, uh, you know, say a company that is, you know, looking 50 years, 30 years down the road saying we want to do this. We need money today to do that. 
um, you know, there might not be as much capital for some of those, um, you know, expenditures or goals at the immediate time. But when you look at different things, like when it comes to government spending and how, you know, China say they, they want to build a permanent lunar um, based on the moon or other ambitious goals like that. So far from what we've seen, that money is still being made available for those projects. And maybe if their timeline gets um, pushed a little bit further out, it's not because they're not funding it and they're waiting till they have you know, more money and they don't have to divert the money. It's more so just because um, you know, different testing things are getting kind of slowed down. But when it comes to you know, governments providing um, you know, its contractors and whatnot, um, you know, the capital that they need to help them achieve their various uh, missions, whether it's, um, you know, just a national um, mission or goal or an actual militaristic goal. Um, we're so far seeing that that funding has not dried up and it is there because it is uh, a very important necessity for those countries. And they see this as a, a long-term play and one that they cannot slow down on and that they're full steam ahead on. So I think that's a really interesting um you know, kind of uh, you know, indicator for the industry and one that also, um, you know, I think provides a little more, um, you know, comfort for these companies knowing, okay, these governments that we were a lot, that we were building these, you know, various, um, you know, products or doing these services for, you know, they're here, they still want it, and they're providing that financing that we need. Sure. And, and now, you know, it, and I'd oh, actually ahead, like Micah. to yep. just add a, a couple things to that. Um, so one of the ways that I think about the split in funding sources is that the startups today, they're still mostly getting their money from a combination of government grants and a little bit of contracting, um, but angel investing and venture capital, those are the big sources for them. And then for the more mature companies, uh, the kinds that are represented in the ETF, um, they're getting their money from uh, government but it's contract revenue rather than grants for the most part. They're providing actual operational services, as Andrew said, um, and, and commercial services, commercial revenues that go along with that. And then they, because they are established, because they have a track record, um, they're able to get loans and uh, other, other sources of debt um, funding. So um, that's that's more or less the division between the startups and the established companies. But then there's this interesting intersection because most of the established companies are also doing venture style deals with the startups. So they're putting some of their capital in. Um, so even though the startups can't access the debt market, um, the established ones can, and then they invest in startups because they see that as a way to rapidly develop new technology that will ultimately um, be beneficial for their own businesses. Well, let's double click on one of those companies. that's kind of, I, I guess you still call them a startup. Virgin Galactic, you know, I have to ask more questions about this one. Uh, and reminder for anybody listening that if you do buy into Procure AM's ETF the, with the ticker UFO, you get a wide basket of, of companies out there. They're investing in a, in a wide variety of publicly traded companies Virgin Galactic, last that I checked, gentlemen, is the third largest holding in your ETF. So I know that you guys have some opinions on this one. This is, this is one that was started, of course, by Sir Richard Branson, a high-profile billionaire entrepreneur, has dreams of, of opening up space uh, to everyday people. Right now, Virgin Galactic is, is offering $250,000 flights uh, into, into orbit. It, my, my, my question, though, you know, without getting too into the weeds of Virgin Galactic is more of the concept of what is the impact going to be of billionaire entrepreneurs, whether it's Branson 
whether it's Bezos, whether, whether it's Elon Musk, that are bringing billions of dollars of their own capital and then also billions of dollars of others that are, that are following them into these ventures, they have a very different concept of risk than the U.S. government has of the concept of risk. And do you see this having um, a, a huge impact on the goals that are being accomplished by the companies now, rather than just the government, but the companies that are doing operations out there? What's going to be the impact of billionaire entrepreneurs starting businesses that are going into outer space? Andrew, would you like to take this one first? I think it's it's exciting and encouraging. I think it shows that if you have um, maybe not even your own capital, but if you have the access to capital and you have a good enough idea that people believe in, that you can, uh, given you know the current landscape of space policy and you know uh, government approvals and whatnot, you're able to try to uh, achieve those goals. And uh, you know, certainly Elon Musk and SpaceX. Uh, you know, Elon has his, uh, you know, his own goals of certain things that he would like to do, but in the process, he is doing tremendous things to help governments achieve their goals. So, you know, I think that, that this competition um, is actually very healthy for the industry and not every single techne- technology is going to work Not every single technology is going to work within a certain you know, time horizon and, and timeline that might be you know, set up or it might be the goal, but um, you know, the current environment is allowing for these different ideas to come to market. And some of the greatest things that are being accomplished is, you know, allowing the U.S. government to be less reliant upon um, your know, foreign nations to help them achieve their military goals. Um, you know, other things are, you know, the actual technologies being developed are revolutionary. And, you know, the, the idea of being able to build reusable rockets are not just going to help those individual companies, but if they're successful and being able to create reusable rockets and, and things such as that, we're going to be able to see these companies helping other companies uh, achieve their goals or at least test out what they think that they can do in space. And it's lowering the barriers to entry because the costs are coming down so dramatically. So part of that is these companies competing with each other and that driving down the cost, but truly the input costs for them to send the items into space are going down because they don't need to rebuild a rocket from scratch every single time they want to send something into space. So I think what they're doing is helping the next wave of entrepreneurs and technologies to become at least potentially economically viable. Whereas, you know, you might have an idea, but say, wow, that's just way too expensive. You know, it's just going to be an idea forever. I'm not going to even get to try it or test it to now where the costs have come down so dramatically because of the competition um, between companies as well as new technologies being developed, that it's allowing for new entrants to, to R&D, different things that you know, may not have been possible five, 10 years ago. And that is going to hopefully create the next, um, you know, the next iteration of technologies to go out there, which the next technologies after that will be able to build off of. So I think it's actually a really incredible thing for the broader space industry. And you know, there certainly is a potential that they could be you know, incredible standalone companies on their own. But the fact that they're also helping to enable other companies and technologies and government goals and missions, I think, is, is something that is um, you know, extremely imperative for the growth of this industry. And they're helping enable this one day at a time. And to that, uh, I would add uh, a couple things. So one is that there's really only one company that I can think of um, that is 
solely funded by a billionaire, and that is Blue Origin funded by Jeff Bezos. So SpaceX, yes, Elon Musk did put some of his own capital in, but at this point it's mostly other people's money. Um, for Virgin Galactic, I believe that is also the case where Richard Branson certainly put in quite a bit to get it started, um, but there were other sources of capital and indeed that was part of the reason that the company went public, which you know we were delighted to see that happen. Um, they needed one final round, they say, uh, of funding uh, to just cross those last few hurdles and begin operations. And so that's what all the investors who now have shares, you know, that's what they're looking forward to. Um, the other thing that I would say, just looking at the broader impact on the culture of space. Um, yes, absolutely agree with what Andrew said on the, the operational aspects of it. Um, but the culture, I think, has changed because of what these people have done. And, and some of it is hype and personality and just you know, these <laughs> larger than life egos that get involved. Um, but some of it is also you know, what they have done. So the fact that they did have to go out and find other parties to put very substantial amounts of money into their companies, that sent a signal to the rest of the industry that yes, you can go out and do it and you can get non-space investors to put money into space, even at those early stages, if you have credible leadership and a credible plan. Um, and then the other thing that I think uh, has happened that, that has really been a huge change is um, you look at SpaceX and how frequently they change their plans or modify them in, in one way or another. Um, the space industry historically has been very conservative you know, very much develop a plan, try to stick to the plan, only change the plan when you run out of money or, um, you know, or, or there's a major technological problem that you have to somehow work around. Um, but with SpaceX, you know, the, that culture that I think comes very much from the Silicon Valley background of Elon Musk and some of the other leaders um, is you pivot as often as you need to, um, to improve the product, to improve the company to change your goals. Um, you know, if a product line just isn't working, then you drop it. And so, you know, the very first rocket that they built, uh, that design, they were planning to keep it and keep flying it for many more years than they ultimately did. Uh, but what happened is they got to a point where they said, nope, you know, we're happy with our next rocket design. It's much larger, it's more powerful. And instead of launching these two smaller ones, which we thought would keep in production, we're just gonna get rid of that product line and it, you know, we'll launch two satellites on a, a large rocket instead. You know, they, they were willing to change their business very, very quickly. Um, and, and it helps that, they, uh, that SpaceX is uh, a company that is controlled by you know, a few people rather than you know, larger groups. So, you know, would it be as successful at making those changes as rapidly if it were a publicly traded company at this point? Well, maybe. It depends on how they structure it. If it's more like Google, where founders retain a substantial amount of control, um, or, or if it's more like, say, Lockheed Martin, uh, where, where the culture is very different. So uh, I think that has, that has really led to some changes in the way that the space industry thinks about itself. Uh, and I think it has been a, a very healthy thing. 
I, uh, I spoke last week with, with Dr. Sandy Magnus, who was a former NASA astronaut, spent four and a half months on the International Space Station. I asked her, what's the best thing of being on the ISS? She says, the view. It's amazing. And everybody wanted to ask her about what it was like on there as soon as she came back from, from that mission. And she had some interesting thoughts about the, the impact that it will have on society now that um, we, have, we have, you know, non government people going into outer space on this new space tourism movement. Uh, they, a lot of these people are, are very well-spoken. They are media figures. They have big personalities. They have a lot of people listening to what they say, and they'll have an opinion on what it's like being out in space. I, I just wondered if you guys think that since space tourism is, is really something that's kind of focused on the consumer market itself, if you think this is going to have any big trends that develop from this socially, environmentally, whatever it might be. Do you see anything um, really impacting the world from this space tourism movement? I'll, I'll start with that. I think that um, there, there are two things that, that could occur from that. I think one, um, you know, every time, like you said, you talk to someone that's actually been to outer space and they get to, to turn around from afar and look back at the, the tiny planet that we actually live on, they get a greater appreciation for Earth. And you know, I think that's extremely important for um, you know, the preservation of the planet and how we treat it and you know, even how we treat each other. And you know, I think that um, you know, if everyone has that ability to, to get that perspective um, in their lifetime, which you know, pr probably not in our, our lifetime and maybe not even our children's children's lifetime, would you know, everyone have that opportunity? Um, but you know, for those that do have that opportunity, I think it would be you know, nearly impossible for them not to gain that type of appreciation for the planet that we live on. And I think that that is something that could be you know, an incredible result of something like that. Further, I think anytime you allow people to experience uh, you know, a revolutionary technology, it's something that you know, changes their perspective um, you know, and, how they, and how they think, opens up just more opportunities. So the first people that, you know, in the first, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people that go up in space, uh, you know, it's not an inexpensive, uh, you know, trip that, you know, just everyone's going to be able to take. It's people that have to have, you know, substantial amounts of money to be able to afford to go up there. And those people have their capital and ability in many cases to actually go out and, and invest or become enlightened and, you know, put their money to work in things that they think might be um, new, um, you know, kind of breakthrough technologies or ideas and things like that. So, um, you know, I think having that experience and people that actually have the ability to, to drive impact and change with, you know, their own investing habits as well could lead and usher in, you know, a new wave of space entrepreneurs and people saying, you know what, this can be done. There's so much opportunity, you know, beyond this planet. And, you know, they may be so touched and, uh, but, you know, by the experience, that it, it you know has them develop their own ideas or or invest towards other people's ideas to help the the human race achieve brand new ideas and thinkings and technologies and many of those could be not you know pointed back at Earth but beyond and I think you know we won't know until this happens but I think you know being able to show that we can safely take people off of our planet and show them what our planet looks like from afar. Um, you know, it, it's something that could really change the mindset to, of people. I think it could be very encouraging and lead to the next wave of new technologies for the space industry. Well, guys, uh, we, we last spoke last year. We, we, we spoke in, in July of 2019, which was actually a very eventful month for you all and for 
space in general because it was the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 lunar landing. We actually put people on the moon in, in July 20, I'm sorry, in July in uh, 1969. And then here we are 50 years later, uh, celebrating a huge, you know, a huge step for mankind here. Now, we know this is a big deal for Procure because you guys actually just initiated a dividend for your ETF too. As a shareholder myself, thank you for that. I'm very much enjoying it. Uh, but I've got to put you on the spot here and ask, and you don't, I'm not going to hold you to this, but just to ask the question anyway, to both of you, what year will it be where we actually see a human being step foot on the planet Mars? That's a micro question. <laughs> you can be off by a couple <laughs> decades. I don't mind. Well, I'm glad you're not going to hold me to it. Um, <laughs> I think probably no earlier than the mid-2030s. And why is that? And that's assuming you know, some fairly ambitious efforts. Um, uh, I think ultimately there is still a lot that we need to understand about living and working in space. And, you know, this is barring some fantastic breakthrough in propulsion technology or something like that, that reduces the travel time to a few weeks <laughs> rather than months or years. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, we, we simply need to know more. Um, and this is one of the areas where the tourism potentially gets to be extremely helpful. Um, so setting aside uh, trips like the ones on Virgin Galactic, which are only a few minutes long and probably aren't long enough to do any serious uh, long-term research on the effects of space uh, on the human body. Um, oh, although maybe you could do that uh, with the pilots and crew since they'd be making repeated trips. Uh, but uh, when, when we're looking ahead to uh, the next stage, and there are already companies that are working to develop private space stations so that uh, individuals who are not government astronauts can spend uh, extended durations in space, you know, starting off with maybe just a week or two, um, but ultimately that could grow yeah, in length. Um, now from all of that, we'll have a much larger group of people to study. Um, and not everyone will participate, but some probably will. Um, and the thing about space is that it's still only a few hundred people who have ever been to space in all of human history. So our understanding of how the human body adapts to those conditions is still very limited. Uh, and, and it's certainly not the most diverse group of people um, that you could imagine. So, so as more people go, we have the opportunity to learn more and to develop better ways of protecting people for long journeys like the one to Mars. So I, I simply think that'll take a while, <laughs> at least a decade, um, to really gain the knowledge and understanding that we would need, and then to develop the associated technology to get to the point where uh, we can send someone and return them safely. Uh, so that's, that's my best guess at this point. Okay, duly noted, Micah, but make sure to lock me in for an interview on the month that someone actually does land on, on Mars. <laughs> I, I would love to chat with you about it when that happens. Uh, last, sure question, that. <laughs> last question for both of you is our audience at 7investing is individual investors. 
uh, want to learn more about space. You all are the experts that are living this on a daily basis. What is one thing that you would recommend that people who are interested in this um, should be following to kind of follow up on the, the progress being made out there right now? Andrew, let's start with you. I, I think that's a tough thing to say. There is so much research. There's so much information. There's so many people around the world that are focusing on this that, you know, there's just so much information to try to digest. Um, yeah, I, th I think you have to keep an open mind, but you also have to stay grounded and realistic with, you know, with expectations and projections. Um, but, you know, I think being being a fan and someone that's interested in space and, you know, reading what you can, learning what you can and staying up to date is, you know, by, by all different means and outlets are is probably the best way to do it. And, you know, I'm just really happy that we were able to, to partner with Micah and his company and our partners at S Network as well. And, you know, we're able to put out, you know, our own research and thought pieces and things like that. Um, and, you know, it's not all just to you know, promote the fund. It's also to, you know, share different ideas and in some ways to you know, interact with others as well to get their opinions. So, you know, we're, you know, on social media and you're know, doing different things. But you know, I, I love to see, you know, the various engagements on Twitter from across the space community. There is just a wealth of information coming from astronauts and people that have actually been in outer space and, and advocates for and, and policymakers. And so, you know, I, I really enjoy, you know, doing different searches on Twitter, you know, regularly to see, you know, what's going on, what's new, what people are saying. And some of it's, you know, absolutely bogus and, and wild and out there. Um, but you can really, you know, filter through it and sort through it and find some, you know, incredible people doing incredible things on a daily basis, whether they're entrepreneurs, astronauts, scientists, um, you know, employees working for the aerospace and defense industry. Um, you know, it's exciting to see what they say because they're even more so on the front lines of this industry. And for us, we get to, you know, or at least for me personally, get to, you know, sit back and watch what some of these incredible entrepreneurs and companies are doing and get to have exposure to, you know, those companies by, you know, having this portfolio of them in our fund. Um, but, you know, I, I think you want to, you know, read and look for the, the craziest out there ideas and the most near-term ideas as well, because it is such a collaborative um, global industry. And it's one that many people don't fully understand, um, you know, what, what's involved, who's involved, what's currently happening, what the goals are. But it's something that, you know, truly could unite us as a planet if we had everyone excited on, you know, helping the human race expand our capabilities beyond just Earth. And, you know, I think that's, that, that, that's what makes us so excited for, for the, the broad implications and, and potential achievements for this industry as, as it grows in the future. And to that, I would just add that, yes, there is all of um, that activity that is very much focused on space. The other thing that I think people should really try to pay attention to is how space connects to Earth. Uh, and how it can be a part of economic development in local communities and at the regional and national level. And there's this ongoing debate, and <laughs> I'm sorry there's no easy way to track it <laughs> because it's, it, it's taking place in all, all these different locations, um, about just what is the value of space for the economy. Um, and this is being studied at the national level in the United States right now because people really want to know that answer. The policymakers want to know that answer. What is the value of space and what is the best way to invest in space in the way that government does? 
um, to ensure that this country continues to reap the benefits of whatever the next wave of, of space innovation is in the way that we've reaped the benefits of all of the innovation for the past several decades. And so uh, at Kalis Partners, the way we're looking at it is how can space be a part of that local economic development? How can it be a part of your community? Um, and so a number of the partners and clients that we've been working with um, have really been seeking to answer that question. And again, circling back to coronavirus, you know, we're seeing a fundamental shift, I think, in the way that the economy is going to be structured. I don't know what all the implications are going to be, um, but I think we're going to see this push toward more remote work, more automation of manufacturing facilities. I think the world is not going to want to risk the economic damage happening again if there is some other virus that sweeps through. So uh, what are the fundamental changes that are going to be made to the economy? And, and at Kalis Partners, we're looking at you know, how do you make space a part of that re-engineering of the system? How do you use space to make your community more resilient, both at the economic level and just the general health and well-being of the population? Um, and so you know, that's raising a host of fascinating questions um, and, and we're still sorting through it. I, I don't have the best answers for you yet, but uh, we have a process that we're working through and, uh, and I think you're gonna see some really interesting things coming out of that. Well, it certainly sounds like an opportunity for investors. Uh, once again, Andrew Channon and Micah Walter-Range are both from Procure Asset Management. Their ETF with the ticker UFO is the world's first space-themed ETF. Uh, these guys are really the innovators out there. The investments um, that these companies are putting to work and, and taking from individual investors like us are truly directing the future of the progress that's being made in outer space right now. Gentlemen, thank you very, very much for the time with Seven Investing this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. And once again, thank you for tuning in here at Seven Investing. We are empowering you to invest in your future. Thanks for listening and until next time. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.